Welcome to the Kingdom Church Podcast. This is part five of our Summer Legacy series. Grab a coffee and your Bible and get ready for an incredible message. Amen. Come on. So we've kind of been uh, this, there, and everywhere this summer when it comes to uh, this series, uh, or lack thereof a series, whatever you want to go with. Uh, I've been um, reading the book of Genesis just in my life, uh, and about a month ago, I read this passage, and it stuck out to me, um, and I shared it with our summer interns, and I just feel like I want to share with the whole church today. So can I just share you what the Lord showed me? Okay. There's a lot of context that precedes this, and I'll give us some of the context as we go along, but let's just read the passage, and then we'll get into it. So, Genesis 17, verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will greatly increase in your numbers. At this, Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be a father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. I hope you understand this. When you come into contact with Jesus, you're never the same. There may be a name or reputation that everyone else knows you as, but Jesus has something different for you. No longer will you be Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come for you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I want to make, uh, I want to call this message, I should say, when God makes a promise when God makes a promise hey can we clap our hands you guys can take a seat this morning come on is there anyone excited to be here today so glad you could join us this long weekend Sunday Um, so uh, as I just mentioned uh, we have uh, this summer uh, summer interns, summer students, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it's just something we've been doing for the last couple of years, hiring summer students. Uh, and it's been amazing. And uh, this year, we have some returning summer students. Uh, we have uh, some new summer interns as well. And I like to think that uh, those who have been here for a few years um, are getting to know and understand me a little bit more uh, than maybe the new people. So one of the new... Uh, Girls this summer is Shiloh. Anyone know who Shiloh is? Now, if you don't know who Shiloh is, it's your loss. You should, you should really get to, to know her. I don't even see her, but she was on the guitar a second ago. So I know she's here today. Um, but uh, back in June, uh, Shiloh asked uh, if she could go away for a week to Kelowna um, in the middle of the summer internship. <laughs> Now, I, of course, let her go. You want to know why? Because I'm the best boss ever. Uh, But uh, when Shallow went to Kelowna for that week, something happened in my life. Uh, Our our fourth uh, baby, our son, Malachi, was born. Come on, somebody. So, yeah, you can give it up. So what happened 
was that uh, Shiloh was gone for a week and I was gone for a week at the same time. And then when we all kind of reconvened in our little staff meeting, uh, and, and you guys need to know I, I make jokes every once in a while. Sometimes they're good, sometimes not. That's, I guess, for you to decide. Uh, <clears throat> but I don't really remember the exact context of uh, the conversation. Uh, but Shiloh was talking about how she was gone. Uh, and I interjected, and I was like, man, I didn't even notice you were gone, Shiloh. <laughs> now, uh, much like Kelsey right there, uh, mouth wide open, <laughs> aghasped. That's what Shiloh did when I said, I didn't even notice you weren't there. And she was like, what? Now, was it the funniest joke in the world? Probably not. It's doubly not as funny when I have to explain it. But I was like, no, Shiloh, like, the joke is, like, I was gone last week as well. Like, that's why I didn't notice that you were gone. Um, and she's like, oh. <laughs> But I, I realized something that uh, is really important, is that in order to understand someone, you have to trust them. Because if you don't fully understand someone, it's really hard to trust them. And the reason it's hard to trust them is because you don't necessarily know their character. I, I would say those that know me well, for the most part, know that I'm joking. Like, if you don't know this, I hate texting. And the only time I really want to text is if I'm making you laugh. If I'm not making you laugh, it's wasting my time. I almost sent a joke a couple days ago, and Christy was like, ah, they might not get it. Don't send it. And so the lesson and the principle, because I'm going to get into scripture, is this, is that in order to trust, you have to understand someone's character. If you don't know someone, it's next to impossible to trust them. Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to help us to learn to trust God. But I believe in order for us to trust God, we have to understand and know his character. Now, one of the things that we say in church sometimes is this is common church rhetoric, uh, and it is simply this, like, trust God. You guys ever been going through something and someone just says, you need to trust God? Anyone ever? Right, just, just trust God, right? You, you lost your job, just trust God. Sickness, just trust God. You guys, you guys have heard that before? Now, I believe that this advice is true and it's good advice. You do need to trust God. But what I wanna suggest today is that if I don't know why God is trustworthy, it's next to impossible to trust him. And so if I don't know his character and someone says, trust God, it's kind of in one ear, out the other. And it sounds really nice. We might say, thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. But we're not really changed. And so what I want to do today is I want to show us the character of God. And I believe that when we understand the character of God, you will see that he is trustworthy. Can we do that today? Can I, can I unlock a little bit of who God is? So. Um, as I said, we're, we're in the book of Genesis, and uh, Genesis 17 in particular for today. In order for today to make sense, I have to give us a little bit more context. Can I do that? So we have to go all the way back um, to Genesis chapter 12 to set the context. So there's a man named Abram, uh, and Abram, which we saw in our opening text, becomes Abraham. So if I 
call him Abram or Abraham. It's the same person, so just follow along. Everyone got that? So God makes a promise to Abram. Abram at this time is 75 years old. God makes a promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all, someone shout all, all. peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God makes this gigantic promise to Abram. Great nation, I'm going to bless you. And the biggest thing, the whole earth is going to be blessed through you. Now, there's two problems with the promise. If you're taking notes, write this down. Two problems with the promise. Problem number one is this. Abram really has no reason to trust God. If you read his story, you will find out that Abram's family, they worshiped other gods. They don't know who this God is, the God of the Bible, the God that in the Old Testament they call him Yahweh. Like Abram doesn't know this God. His family didn't worship him. And so although God makes this grandiose promise, Abram doesn't know who he is. And so it's really difficult to trust someone when you don't fully know them or understand them. Abram's family worshiped other gods. But what I love about God is that God makes this huge promise to someone that didn't even worship him. Why? Because God chooses who he wants. Come on, somebody. It's not about having it all together. It's not about doing the right things. God will choose who he wants, when he wants to accomplish his purposes. And so if you think you're disqualified because X, Y, Z, I'm here to tell you God chooses who he wants. And sometimes who he chooses, come on, scolds and puts to shame human wisdom because he'll use the most unlikely things. So problem number one with the promise is that Abram doesn't really know, can I trust God or not? Because he doesn't have this long history with him. Number two, and this is probably the biggest one, because he's saying, I'm going to make you into a great nation. The whole world's going to be blessed through your descendants. Um, Sarah, his wife, and Abram were barren. They weren't able to have children. That's problem number two. They're not able to have children. Now, they weren't able to have children in the best of times. Where we pick up the story today, Abram is 75 years old, and Sarah is 65 years old. And God comes, and he says, hey, I'm going to make a great nation through you. Now, in their best days, they weren't able to have kids. Now that they're getting discounts at Denny's, God comes, and he makes a promise that I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants. You guys see the problems? But despite the problems, God has made the promise. So, I'm going to span Genesis 12 to 17 really quickly because God, I believe, begins to address problem number one. If you want to kind of understand like Genesis 12 to 17 in short, it's basically God showing why he's trustworthy and Abram showing that like he doesn't fully trust God. And so, literally, in Genesis 12, because God says, hey, through you guys, going to make you a great nation. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they go to Egypt, and when they get to Egypt, 
Abram says, hey, Sarah, um, you're kind of hot. And so I'm really worried that like if the people here see you, they're going to kill you and take you. So can you just pretend to be my sister and just go with them, essentially? He basically gives her away when God has made the promise. But Abraham seeks danger, and he's like, I don't know if I can trust God. Here, take my wife. This is in the Bible. The Bible isn't boring. You're boring. you got to read it. <laughs> and so what happens, literally, is then God sends a disease to Pharaoh. And he's like, don't you dare touch. Or he sends him a dream, and then uh, there's a threat of a disease. Like, don't you dare <laughs> touch her. Give her back. And so Pharaoh literally gives his wife, gives Sarah back to Abram and gives him a whole bunch of cattle and goods and money. Why? Because God is trying to show him, listen, when I make a promise, I'm going to be faithful to it. And this kind of pattern plays out from Genesis 12 to 17 where God shows, like, listen, you can trust me. Abram's wealth increases. Why? Because God said, I'll make your name great. Abram's, his whole crew just continues to grow. Everything grows except... One thing. Like God is showing, hey, you can trust me, you can trust me, you can trust me, but there's still one problem. There's no kid. You guys ever been there? Where like a whole lot of stuff is happening, a lot of good stuff, but then there's that one thing, and it still isn't coming to pass? So problem number two still exists. Sarah and Abram are barren. And so this is when God comes to him. Again, this is 25 years later. Now, if you know your scripture, there's, there's a little Hagar in between here. Again, go read that tonight. I don't got time for that. Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, so this is, this is 25 years later, 25 years after the original promise, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Now, I love this, and I don't want us to miss this. Because there's a promise, and the promise hasn't yet come to pass. And what's interesting is in this moment, God doesn't say, Abram, just trust me. You just got to trust me. He doesn't remind him of the promise. He doesn't say, hey, listen, there's the, the promise still stands. No, no, what does he do? God just reveals more of who he is. Did you guys get that? God doesn't say, trust me more. He says, I want you to understand me better. And so he says, I am God Almighty. Now, I want you to understand this. This is important. The Bible as a whole. If you're like, what, what is the Bible? What, what's it all about? I'll tell you what it's not. It is not a rule book on morality. That's not what it is. Ultimately, what the Bible is, it is a revelation of the character of God. He says, I am God Almighty. Why does he do this? Pretty simple, because it is only when I understand God that I can begin to trust him. And so God must be revealed first in order that I can trust him. And so he says, what's the revelation? He says, I am God Almighty. Now, in the Hebrew, this is El Shaddai. Anyone remember Amy Grant back in the 90s? Come on, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Where are my boomers at? Anyways, um, 
we sing it in forever Yahweh too, El Shaddai. El Shaddai. It's the Hebrew word for God Almighty. Now, God Almighty means all-powerful. It means omnipotent. It means he's everywhere. He is above all things. He is God Almighty. Now, El Shaddai is Hebrew. Sounds kind of beautiful when we sing it. But I want to give you an even, I think, better, not, not better, but like a deeper meaning to this word. So can I teach for half a second? Nerds, you're going to love this. Everyone else, you might gloss over for a moment, but just, just stay with me, okay? Can I teach you guys something? So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. By the time of Jesus, the Jews were dispersed all over the land, and um, really in like the centuries before Jesus, uh, the primary language was shifting to Greek. And so a lot of Jewish people were now speaking Greek. And so at this time, uh, as the legend goes, there were 12 Jewish scholars that began to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And this document became known as the Septuagint. Kind of a cool world, right? Like, it seems like I'm like Nick Cage, like treasure hunter guy. You guys know that movie, anyone? <laughs> now, what's it called? National Treasure? Um, so the Septuagint, this is the teaching, just say the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. Now, why this is kind of relevant is if when, you, when you read the New Testament, a lot of the writers of the New Testament will quote the Old Testament. And a lot of them, when they quote the Old Testament, are not quoting the Hebrew Bible, but they are quoting the Septuagint, because that was the language in which they read it. Again, nerds are like, sweet, rest y'all like, don't care. Here's the point. In the Septuagint, Genesis 17, verse 1, is translated into Greek. And in the Greek, or in the Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. In the Septuagint, the word for God Almighty is the Greek word pantocrator. Mind my accent. So God's revealing who he is. And these scholars thought the best Greek word to use here was pantocrator. Here's what it means. It means the one who has his hand on everything. This is so cool. This is the part that, like, when I, when I read this, I was like, I got, I got to teach this to someone. Abram's 99 years old. Genesis 12 to 17, there's, a lot, there's lots of blessings in his life. And when there are blessings and when there are good things happening in our life, it's real easy to say, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. God is so mighty, oh my. Like, it's easy. That's, that's the Harrison translation. Like, when things are, go you, got, you guys following though? When life is going good, it's easy to believe God is almighty. Abram, 99 years old, him and his wife are still barren. And God comes to him and says, listen, I am still God almighty. Even more than that, I am the God who has my hands on everything. What do I learn from this? Whatever your situation, whatever you're going through, God has his hand on everything. There is nothing outside of the grasp of Jesus. He is in all things and he is through all things. And so what that means is this, whatever I'm going through as dark 
as hard as it may be, I can believe that God has his hand even on this. In Abram and Sarah's fertility, infertility, God's hand was even on this. Now, for some of us, you're saying, hold up. I get God's hand is on everything. But what does that mean about the situations like death? What does that mean about like disease? What about those things, Harrison, that like, if, if God is good, how could his hand be on that? Like, like on sickness, on death, on disease, like is God's hand still on that? The answer is yes, but let me explain. Because to have your hand on something does not mean that you're responsible for it. It just means that there is nothing that is outside of the the grasp or the grip of God. He is still there even in the bad. Now hear me, I do not believe that God is the author of evil in this world. God is not the author of disease. God is not the author of death. So you're like, Harrison, well, why is there death? Why is there disease? Because maybe you've heard, this is like a classic atheist argument. Maybe you've heard this. It's pretty simple. It's if God is good, if God is all-powerful, then why is there evil? Why is there suffering? How could there be an all-powerful, how could there be an all-good God when there's still suffering and evil? I believe quite simply there's two reasons for this. Number one, we live in a fallen world. What does that mean? It means that sin reigns. It's everywhere. And this is, this, is, this is the big Christian worldview. And what that means is that there are things in this world that God never intended to be a part of this world. Yet they are here nonetheless. If you go back to the very first book of the Bible, there's this tree. And God says, hey, don't eat from the tree or you're going to die. The devil comes and he's like, don't listen to God. Just eat it. And they eat it, and what happens is sin, death, and decay enter the world. And so all of us, thousands of years later, we still live in the, in the, in the shadow of the garden, meaning sin, death, disease. All that stuff is here because we're in a fallen world. That's, that's reason number one, I believe there's still evil, there's still suffering. Number two, I think, is free will. And what I mean by that is whether we know this or not, although God reigns above it all, one of the ways in which God reigns is he allows us to do as we please. Y'all, maybe you know this, maybe you didn't, but you're allowed to do what you want. And what happens when 7 billion people are free-ranging and free-roaming and doing what they want, a lot of times the result is death, destruction, and disease. And so I say that all to say that God still reigns above it all. He is not the author, he is not the orchestrator, but God, because his hand is on everything, he has the ability to take the things that he has no part in and turn them for good. I'll give you an example. In Genesis chapter 50, there's a guy named Joseph, and Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. Y'all think your brothers are bad? Like, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. Joseph is a slave for a long time, um, and over time, he's in a pit, 
life gets really bad, but over time, he raises to the top in command, uh, second in command in all of Egypt. And in this story, what happens is his brothers eventually meet Joseph face to face, and the guy that they threw in prison now has the power to destroy them. But Joseph says something, I believe, that will help us understand what it means when God has his hand on everything. Joseph says to his brothers, Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So I want you to hear and understand me. There are things in life that have been intended to harm you, and they are not from the hand of God. But what the hand of God does in his omnipotence omnipotence, is that he has the ability to turn that which was meant for evil into that which he can use for good. And so I want you to hear me. I'm not coming up here with all the answers. I do not know why sometimes life works out the way it does. I don't know why some people are going through the things that they are going through. But what I do know is that as hard as it is, the God that we serve is the God of the big picture. And the God of the big picture promises, even in this, my hand is still on it. And I have this way of turning the worst things for good. And so I just, I just want to share two truths Because I know for some of us that that God has his hand on everything is encouraging, and for some of us it's discouraging. Here are two truths. God's hand is on everything. That's the overarching truth. But number one is this, God is good. And that is found mostly through experience, that God is so good. And I encourage you to get connected and begin to hear the stories of the people in this church, in this room, because there are so many people in this room that will tell you the hardest thing in my life that I did not want, that I did not understand, God used it for glory. I just know there are people in this room, myself included, the hardest times have brought me to the places where I've seen the face of God, and he is good. And number two, God cares more than we do. Please hear this. Because when we're praying desperately, It's like, does God God hear? God cares more than we do. And so understand this. The big picture is that God, in Romans 8, 28, says, we know in all things God will work for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So the big picture is that he is the God that takes the bad and makes it good. And we don't always understand it. But his hand is truly on everything. Oswald Chambers says it like this. He says, God's aim often looks like missing the mark because we are too short-sighted to see what he's aiming at. We live in this like two-dimensional plane. God exists outside of reality. And so he sees the big picture. And so sometimes when it's like, God, where are you? I think you missed the mark. We just can't see what he's aiming at. So I just want to encourage you, God is not the author of pain in your life. God is not the author of disease. God is not the author of sickness. He is certainly not the author of death. He is the God of healing. He is the God of saving. And he is the God that has the ability to use the things in our life that we could never think could be used for glory. God can do just that.
Why? Because he is the God who has his hand on everything. God sees us. God understands us. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says it like this. He says, therefore, we don't lose heart. I don't give up. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes. Look at this. On not what is seen. I can't focus on what's in front of me, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. I want to speak peace to someone to let you know that God is doing something eternal. He's doing something bigger than we could ever think, dream, or imagine. And his hand is on everything. And so to Abram, he says, listen, I know. I know the promise. I know the problem. But my hand is even on this. And so, continuing Again, verse 1, I'm I'm the Lord Almighty. I'm God Almighty. He says, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So this is important. God says, I am God. I'm the God who has my hand on everything. Then he says... Walk before me faithfully and blamelessly. You know what it means to be faithful? It means to trust. So I need us to get this. Revelation always precedes expectation. Revelation comes before expectation. The expectation to Abram is trust me, follow me, be blameless. But first, God reveals who he is. And so I just want to encourage us, before we ever tell someone to trust God, we need to share why he's trustworthy. We need to share his character. We need to share his goodness. And I believe we see this all throughout Scripture. Revelation always comes before expectation. And it's not just in trust. A lot of times we do this in morality. And what I mean by that is that as Christians, we have a specific way in which we live. And a lot of times, we want to shove our morality down other people's throats. Hey, you should follow my sexual ethic. Because God says so, trust him. But our job is to first reveal, come on, who he is. Revelation always comes before expectation. And you want to know how to get people to hate you real quick as a follower of Jesus? Expect a whole lot out of them and never reveal who Jesus is. Talked about religiosity, talked about religion last week. Talking about legacy in this series, kind (laughs) of. You want to leave behind a bad legacy? Talk a whole lot more about God's expectation as opposed to his revelation. The Bible from the beginning to the end, the last book literally being the book of Revelation, reveals who God is. Can I show you this pattern from the very beginning? Look at this, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You can memorize some scripture today. This is the first book in the Bible, first verse. This is how the book starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
How does God begin scripture? Revealing. This is who I am. I am the creator. I am the one who reigns above it all. In the beginning, God created. What's the principle we can take? The creator always knows more than creation. But if I don't know that God is creator, why would I ever submit to him as creation? So our job, are you guys following? Is to reveal before we expect. And that's what God is doing with Abram. He's revealing who he is. Then he says, walk before me faithfully. We reach people with revelation, not with expectation. Our world's got so many issues. You understand that? There's a lot going on. There's a big issue right now, which to be honest, I don't think is a new issue, but it's the issue of identity. I think like never before, people are struggling to understand who am I? What am I? This isn't a new issue. Maybe how it's manifested is kind of new, but it's not a new issue. From the beginning to the end, people are always trying to figure out who am I? Now, as Christians, we can put some expectations on them and say, well, I'll tell you how to live. I'll tell you what to believe. I'll tell you what to stop doing. Or we can say, hey, I might actually have the answer to the question of who you are. And maybe who you are is even better than you thought. And maybe there's nothing you have to do in order to have value because there's a God who created you. And you're created in his image. And your identity is in him. And that's a beautiful picture. And that's a whole lot better than the expectation picture. And sometimes when we meet people, our first conversations are, here are four disciplines to change your life. Listen, I live on disciplines. But if I start there, I'll never reach people. I start with revelation. This is who God is. This is what he's done in my life. Come on, man, people are struggling with self-worth. Struggling to, like, and, and our advice sometimes is delete Instagram. Just get off the gram and you'll be good. Sometimes you got to delete Instagram. Somebody said amen. But that isn't the starting point. And if it's the starting point, you're going to get people to hate you real quick. The starting point is this. Hey, maybe there's someone that said you're worth it. Because... The Bible says in John 3, 16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And I want you to understand something, that you would never die for someone that isn't worth it. And God died for us even while we were sinners. And so even in your worst moments, Jesus still thought that you were worth it. And and that's where my identity is built. But I have to reveal who God is. I can't go to expectation. The Bible starts with creation. God created. God did. We too many times start with do. This is what you have to do. The gospel is all about what Jesus has done. Too many times we start with, this is what you need to do. But revelation always precedes expectation. And as God is revealed, I can trust him more. As I begin to understand that God's hand is on everything, I can begin to trust him more, even when it doesn't make sense. And so it says in verse 3, it says at this, Abram fell face down. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. This is my promise to you. You will be a father of many nations. 
Now remember, him and his wife can't have kids. He says, you will be a father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. You see, a part of what God does when he reveals who, we, who he is, is he begins to reveal who we are. And I said it off the top, but it bears repeating. I want us to understand this. God doesn't see you how everyone else sees you. God doesn't see the worst in you. God knows the best in you. And so he says to Abram, I love this, in the declarative, you will be a father of many nations. Because here is the truth. When God makes a promise, it will come to pass. That's the truth. When God makes a promise, it will come to pass. And he says, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. So let me explain this. Abram, his name in Hebrew means exalted father. Exalted father. I just, this is kind of cool. You guys can, so in the Hebrew, like Avrim, Ava, Ava, which is like Abba, his father. Uh, my daughter's name is Abigail. It's a Hebrew name, Ava, Abba. Abigail means father's joy. What a beautiful name, because she is my joy. I just had to, just had to say that. That's what Abigail means. Um, Abraham is a, is a similar name to, to Abigail. Um, Abram uh, means exalted father. You guys get that? So his name had a double meaning. Number one, it was a name to, to kind of look point back to his own father, to exalt his father. But it was also a name that would point forward. His, na- his father named him. He probably didn't even know, but he named him prophetically, saying, one day you're going to be an exalted father. That's his name. But him and his wife can't have kids. Do you guys see that? The name's a promise, but there's a problem. And so I wonder if, for Abram's life, I wonder if his name that was pointing back to his father and supposed to point forward to his future began to be a source of shame and a reminder of all that he didn't have. And so I wonder in this moment, because God comes and he's like, I'm going to change your name. And maybe Abram's like, finally. Like, finally I can get rid of this exalted father. Finally I can get past my shame. Finally I don't have to be reminded of what I don't have. And what I love is that God, he doesn't give him something different. He doubles down. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. God says, listen, I'm not, I'm not releasing you from that name. I'm doubling down. Not only are you going to be an exalted father, you are going to be a father of many nations. Why? Because God doesn't see what is. God sees what will be. And I want you to understand the book of Revelation. I should have put the verse in. I was debating it. But it says at the end of times, when we see Jesus, he's going to give us this stone. And on that stone, there's going to be a name on it. And the book of Revelation says that name will only be discernible to the one who reads it. And so this cool moment, we're all going to have it, where God's going to give you a new name. And we're going to read it, and when we read it, we're probably going to weep because it's going to make sense. 
And I don't know what it's going to say, but my guess is it's probably going to have something to do with like your greatest insecurity. And it's going to be the opposite. And God's going to say, this is how I saw you all along as a son and as a daughter. There's a, there's a new name coming. And so he doubles down. He says, not only are you going to be an exalted father, you're going to be a father of many nations. And he says, I will make you fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. In the midst of the problem, God just doubles down on the promise. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to be your God and the God of the people that come after you. And I'm going to fast forward about 2,000 years really quickly here. But when Abram's 100 and Sarah's 90, she gets pregnant. And like the moment God says, you're getting pregnant, she laughs. And God's like, why did you laugh? And she's like, I didn't laugh. And he's like, yes, you did. That's in the Bible, y'all. You guys reading? How many of y'all love scripture? You gotta, gotta get, that's, that's, that's a legit exchange in scripture. I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And Sarah, at the ripe old age of 90, has a son. His name's Isaac. You know what Isaac means? Isaac means he laughs, right? Because Sarah's, the Bible's funny, man. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob gets a new name. It's a long story, and his name is Israel. And Israel becomes this nation. And this nation, if you want to understand the whole arc of the Old Testament, they're kind of rebellious. They don't really follow God. They're messed up people. But God doesn't wipe them from the face of existence simply because God made a promise to Abraham that I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants. And so what happens, a whole lot after this, more like 4,000 years after this, is that someone is born in Bethlehem by the name of Jesus. And in the book of Galatians, Paul puts some language to the promise. He says the promise that was spoken to Abraham and to his seed Scripture does not say, and two seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So Paul's putting language. He's like, you, you want to understand, because God says, I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants, through your seed. Paul's saying it was, it was just one. It was just one. And that person is Jesus. And so I want us to understand some big picture today. Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment to this promise that God made to Abraham all those years later that I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And I want us to understand something because I think a lot of times we get confused when it comes to promises in Scripture. Not every promise in Scripture is for you. Now, there's, there are many promises in Scripture for you, but not every promise is actually for you. 
But here's one promise that I want you to understand that is for you. Jesus. Jesus is for you. Jesus is the guarantee of the character of God. Jesus is the guarantee that when God says, I am the one who has my hand on everything, it's true. It's true. The promise is this. I may not understand life right now. I may not know how this is going to end, but I do know the one who holds the beginning from the end. I do know the one who sent his son Jesus, and Jesus has made a way that whoever shall believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. When God makes a promise, listen to this, we can take it to the bank. Jesus is the guarantee of the promise. Can can I just share one more cool thing, then I'll get out of here. He says to Abraham, he's like, I'm gonna make you a great nation. A great nation. Today in the world, uh, there are three major religions that would call themselves Abrahamic religions. That would be Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. All three consider themselves Abrahamic religions. Now, hear me, I'm not saying all three believe (laughs) the correct things. What I am saying is that all three would call themselves children of Abraham. God says, I'll make you a great nation. You wanna know on planet Earth today how many people fall under the name of Abraham? 3.5 billion people today consider themselves part of Abraham's clan. And the reason I'm telling you guys this is because when God makes a promise, you can believe it because it will come to pass. Here's a promise today. John 16, I'll leave us on this. Jesus says, I've told you all these things so that in me you may have peace. Here's a promise. Please, you need to hear this. Don't think otherwise. In this world you will have trouble. If you follow Jesus, you'll still have trouble. But here's the promise, the secondary and better promise. He says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Whatever you're going through, it's gonna be okay because Jesus has overcome. Tim Keller, the late, great Tim Keller, one of my heroes, as you guys know, I was listening to one of his last interviews. He died of cancer um, a number of months back. And he said, the message of Jesus, he said, the resurrection is so simple. He says, if Jesus really raised from the dead, he said, everything's gonna be okay. That's the end of the story. If Jesus really rose from the dead, everything's gonna be okay. He's going to make this thing better. He's gonna make your situation new. If Jesus really rose from the dead, I can cling to the promise that one day it's gonna be made better. Can we stand for a sec, church? I think this morning there's been some revelation in terms of who Jesus is, why he's trustworthy, why we can trust him. The very first expectation that Jesus puts on us is super simple. It's just to accept the invitation, just to say yes.
And so right now, every head bowed, every eye closed. This is between, you know, just you and the Lord. If you're in this place and you feel the Holy Spirit is working inside of you right now, there's this feeling, maybe your heart is racing, maybe your, your hands are palmy or clammy. But I think it's the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention. And if you're here right now and you've been going your own way and you're not finding any peace, you've had the best advice, but it's not working. What I want to suggest today is that maybe the thing you've been missing is Jesus, the one who is faithful from the beginning to the end. And if that's you this morning in in, in a super simple gesture and a first step, I want to invite you into a relationship with him. And so if you're here this morning and you feel like you want to take that step, I'm just going to encourage you. Just right now, every head bowed, every eye closed, can you show me your hand? I just want to welcome you into into a relationship with Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Father, you see every single hand, you see every single heart. You are a faithful God. You know every story in this place. You know every hardship, you know every victory, you know every win, you know every sin. And God, you are calling us home. We cling to the promise that the work is done. On the cross, you made a way. When you rose from the dead, you claimed victory over death, victory over disease, victory over darkness. And so, fathers, as believers, we claim that. And we thank you for it. Father, for every decision in this place today, I pray that it be the first in a journey to following you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you want to learn more about our church or get connected, head over to kingdomchurch.ca and we'll see you next week.